Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where PE leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's PE trends. Hi, everyone. I'm John Kim, a partner in Deckard's Corporate and Securities Practice Group based here in New York. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about challenges, trends, and developments related to equity co-investments in private equity transactions. Joined today by three distinguished speakers. First, we have Brent Humphreys, who's the president and founding member of AB Private Credit Investors. Next, we have Patrick Kochi, who's head of U.S. co-investment at Ardian. And finally, we have Demetrius Sidbury, who is a managing director at Hamilton Lane. Gentlemen, thank you each very much for joining us here today. Uh, before we begin, I thought we'd give our audience a very high-level overview regarding co-investments in the PE industry. At its core, co-investments refer to arrangements whereby third parties invest alongside controlling sponsors. Co-investments can be made at different levels in a transaction and at different attachment points. Now, typically, co-investments are made in the exact same class and type of security as the equity owned by the sponsor. However, co-investments can sometimes be at different levels in a structure, such as in a different tranche of preferred or non-voting equity. It's also not uncommon for co-investors to invest through separate vehicles or aggregators that are controlled by the sponsor. And all these arrangements can have different impacts on regulatory and tax structuring, as well as governance issues. And co-investments can serve multiple functions. First, they can be used as a method of raising additional capital without having to share governance or control. But they can also be used to help align interests of critical constituents in a deal, like management, lenders, and even commercial relationships. And so with that background, why don't we uh, start with you, Demetrius? Um, at which points in the deal timeline do co-investors typically join the transaction? Well, well, first, John, thanks for having us on. It's certainly a wonderful opportunity to, to discuss what we're seeing in this part of the market. In, in terms of where we're seeing co-investors get involved in transaction, it, it's really at any given point along the deal process. So as early as ideation and as late as post-deal signing uh, and more of a syndication framework. And that can vary inside of a single deal process or by co-investor. Now, if you were to go back five or certainly 10 years ago, uh, there were fewer co-investors getting involved in a deal pre-signing or pre-LOI. Uh, and that's changed quite a bit. Um, this evolution has been driven by a shift in both GP and LP behavior, where for GPs, having sufficient capital lined up earlier in the very competitive process can ultimately help win the deal. And for LPs, there's just more and more demand for co-invest. And typically, the earlier you can get involved to show support, the better off you are in securing the allocation you're looking for. So the key in any case is to be flexible as both pre- and post-signing co-investments are important parts of today's opportunity set. This sounds like it has impacts on investment decisions. Are there particular different areas of emphasis depending on at which points you join the transaction? That's a great question. I think as, as far as the diligence process is concerned, there's really no difference in terms of what we're ultimately looking for. So for us, there's an immense focus on asset quality, industry trends and management and sponsor capabilities. And that's regardless of when you get involved in the deal process. I think where you, where you typically see a notable difference is around expectations for the sharing of fees and expenses, uh, specifically broken deal costs or fees related to advisors that you have to pay whether the deal happens or not. I think the post-signing world has has limited risk associated with these types of expenses, at least without actually owning the asset at the end of the day. In pre-signing situations, uh, there's usually an agreement reached on how broken deal fees will be shared amongst the investor group uh, in the case the deal doesn't pan out. So I think on this topic, 
you know, we all want to be good partners on the co-investment side, but we also want to manage the risk and potential costs associated with the process where we can't fully control the outcome. Um, at Hamilton Lane, we've navigated these situations often, but it's certainly a consideration when it arises. Thanks, Demetrius. Brent, how about you? Your approach to equity co-investing differs somewhat from traditional co-investments and that your transactions are made in connection with debt investments. How does that affect the way you approach things? Sure. Uh, I'm happy to take that. And, and first, just to, to clarify, we have really two platforms at AB Private Credit Investors. We have a sizable private credit direct lending platform, and then we have a growing and very important private equity platform. And I think what we should do is distinguish between LP-driven uh, co-investment processes, where typically the sponsor is going out to its its core group of limited partners, often partners that are invested in the fund and, and that may be even on the advisory committee, um, relative to how we approach co-investment when we are a lender, first and foremost. And I, I think one of the key distinctions is when we do get involved. We tend to get involved much earlier when we're lending to that company because uh, generally we are supporting the sponsor throughout the acquisition process, including participating in management meetings, evaluating third-party due diligence that the sponsor will, will commission, but also conducting our own primary diligence, industry research, market diligence, et cetera, uh, and a very you know fundamental detailed-oriented investment and credit analysis. And it's important we get involved early because we have to provide commitments for that sponsor at the time that they sign their letter of intent. They need to know they have full, committed, no-outs financing. And so we can't come in post-signing in that case. Um, and so I'd say the diligence process is generally um, much more hands-on, much more active, much more self-directed. To Demetrius' point, we are looking for the same thing when we come in as an LP after signing, for example. It's just going to be more packaged for us by the sponsor as opposed to us really driving a lot of the diligence directly. Got it. All right. Why don't we move on to the issue of alignment? Um, a critical feature of any co-investment is to ensure alignment with the lead sponsor. And this can often be even more valuable than contractual provisions that we get into these documents. Um, sponsors get larger and expanded to different business lines, however. Uh, they have different touch points with their portfolio companies. And a traditional alignment at the equity holder level can begin to diverge. Um, for example, we have a lot of sponsors now. They have affiliates that provide back office, support, and other services to their portfolio companies. So, Patrick, um, given this potential misalignment of economics and incentives, how do you, how do you see co-investors viewing these arrangements, and how do they protect themselves from adverse consequences? Sure, John, and um, thank you for the opportunity to, to speak to you and, and your audience today on behalf of myself and Ardian. Uh, let's start with some of the basics that you addressed in your introduction. A, a co-investor is really looking to be almost perfectly aligned with a sponsor when going into a deal. And if we're just narrowly focusing on the transaction in and of itself, the equity commitment letter that we would typically sign, to your point, that has some contractual protections in it, but it's a relatively skinny legal document. 
You may have in it things such as tag-along rights or drag-along rights or some other things such as information rights that are important to us, but really what's more important is that we're economically aligned with the sponsor. So when we go into a transaction, just as you mentioned, we want to be in the same security, whether it's a preferred or whether it's common, and it's typically common, but, but to your point, sometimes it differs. We want to be in that same security as the sponsor. We want to get in at the same time. We want to get out at the same time. And so that alignment is absolutely critical. It's, if there is any divergence there, then co-investors like us throw up an orange or a red flag and wonder whether this is the right transaction. So that's just on the basics of, an, of a normal sort of day-to-day co-investment, if you will. Now, with regard to some of these activities that you're referring to here that sponsors have started to engage in, I personally can't get terribly bothered about services or support that a sponsor provides directly to the portfolio company and then gets compensated for that. Yes, it's true. I don't get a share of that, but I also don't do the work. And ultimately, as a shareholder, if they do it well, EBITDA should grow, revenue should grow, and ultimately, I should benefit from that. The only area I would say, John, um, and maybe Brent will have a view on this as well, that does bother me is you see some of the larger cap sponsors get into capital markets, arranging debt, um, even arranging other co-investments of things that they aren't personally invested in themselves out of one of their funds. That's certainly something where we stop and we pause and we take note and we look at, okay, so if we want to go into the equity of XYZ deal by ABC sponsor and their capital markets group is arranging the entire debt, what are the fees that they are charging there? And sometimes on a larger cap transaction, that can be very substantial. Is it an immediate no-go? No, it isn't. But it's certainly something to be extremely conscientious about and aware about. And you have to go in eyes wide open, knowing that there are certain streams of cash that uh, go to the sponsor in those situations. Yeah, thank you. And it's, it's absolutely an area that's getting more and more attention these days. And Brent, you're, you're kind of in both spaces there. Does your approach to alignment and the potential for conflict differ when you're playing the role of credit provider and making an equity co-investment in the same deal? Yeah, the way I would think about it is as it relates to the equity investment, we're really concerned about the exact same things that Patrick mentioned. We're concerned about alignment. We want absolute economic alignment of interest, same security, invest at the same time, same valuation, exit at the same time, have the opportunity to participate in follow-ons, etc. The typical minority rights that any co-investor would have. I think the key distinction, however, is when we are also a lender, we really go into it knowing where our allegiances lie. And what I mean by that is when you make a co-investment, you're exercising your investment judgment and your fiduciary duty on the front end by first and foremost, selecting the asset and making the decision that you want to commit capital, partnering with that particular sponsor, and then negotiating all of those things that will create that alignment on the back end and through the exit. But once those items are negotiated, it's relatively more passive. You're partnered with the sponsor and the sponsor is the lead control investor. Conversely, when we're making a credit investment, we are very actively managing the credit risk. And so it's important for us to always know which hat we're really wearing. So if we invest in credit and equity co-investment, we view the equity co-investment 
as a sweetener, as a way to create optionality within our credit portfolio. Um, but we're always going to be overweight the credit in that instance. Typically, 90, 95% of our capital will be in credit so that if the company became challenged in any way, we know we're a lender first and foremost. And so we don't feel like we have misalignment you know, uh, going forward. I do think one area that we are concerned about and that we focus on is the increasing interest of sponsors, both upper mid-market and large cap sponsors, to launch uh, debt fund affiliate businesses, to, so to launch their own private credit businesses. And you know that can create some real potential for conflict. And so we have to be thoughtful about how we deal with, with this new kind of trend or this, it, this, this trend that continues to grow. And specifically, we recognize that sponsors are looking to grow their business and grow their assets under management and expand their overall franchise. At the same time, we have to make sure that, you know, as a creditor and as a lender to that deal, we manage the potential conflict of having a sponsored debt fund affiliate in the same debt structure. So typically, the way we do that is we monitor and manage the size that the sponsored debt fund affiliate would be able to hold in that particular instrument. And then there are certain voting rights that uh, we will be very focused on making sure we control, in particular, in a bankruptcy situation. And so in that case, the sponsor in some respects, is a little more like a co-investor in our credit in that typically, you know, we should be very aligned with them on the credit and, you know, their debt fund affiliate will get the same outcome that we would get as a credit investor. It's interesting how the tables turn a little bit when they're on the uh, participating with you as the lead lender. But as discussed, alignment is very important, um, particularly with respect to monetization and exit events. However, we are seeing the increasing popularity of continuation funds, um, is where sponsors are transferring their investments between their own affiliated entities. And these do present some interesting considerations for, for co-investors. Uh, Demetrius, what risks do you think these continuations funds pose for co-investors, and how do you see uh, co-investors managing this risk? John, I'll take this question in the context of a single asset continuation vehicle um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, they represent around half of the continuation fund market today. And, and two, that's where you're going to see a lot of interest from the, the co-investment world uh, where, where we sit. So um, I think we want to kind of talk about it in that context. We evaluate these deals often because they have a compelling profile. They often have better J-curve, uh, sponsor familiarity with the asset, uh, along with other features that we really like. Uh, where we've generally struggled is around alignment, which is a topic that we, we keep coming back to. Uh, and we've had a lot of success, as Patrick mentioned earlier, of achieving perfect alignment with GPs and our co-investments, um, and specifically our co-investment vehicles historically. And with the continuation vehicles, there's usually some sort of misalignment around fees and economics, maybe sponsor reinvestment levels and, and or duration expectations. So that's probably the biggest risk for us. I think one of the other ones that we think about is just around the scale of the business and, and has it really moved beyond the scope of the GP in terms of sheer size. But that, that's something that can really be sorted out in diligence. As far as how co-investors are managing uh, the alignment piece, I think that there's kind of two camps. There's the camp that we really have fallen into so far, which is some simply aren't playing here, or at least not from, from their co-investment vehicles. And so where we've mostly managed these exposures is through our secondary platform. And we've been very thoughtful in approach here, but the thinking is on the secondary side of the business, that's just some of the alignment issues are just a part of doing business. 
where we do see traditional co-investors getting more and more comfortable is where they can move that alignment closer to the center uh, and less in favor of the general partner. So, for example, negotiating lower economics, higher hurdles to trigger carry, uh, more GP or management rollover, uh, among other items. So, again, you know, we've had success here through our secondary business and could ultimately get there at some point with our co-investment capital um, just with the, the right terms. Got it. And, and Patrick, what do you think is causing this increase in popularity? And do you think this is just the latest uh, temporary fad or do you expect this trend to continue with these continuation funds? I think, John, that the reason they're popular is because people can make a lot of money off them, to be perfectly blunt about it. Um, certainly, uh, some of the, uh, the investment banks that specialize in the secondary practices are doing extraordinarily well raising capital for GPs. And by the way, I don't mean this with any cynicism. I'm just straightforward observation. And I think that it's too early to tell in my crystal ball whether this is something that will last for years and years and years because it's been a relatively recent phenomenon. I can speak only on, on behalf of our co-investment vehicle over the last year or so. We've done uh, just under a handful of these, a few in Europe and a few in the U.S., uh, but if you would have asked me three years ago, what's a continuation vehicle, I would have given you a blank stare because I wouldn't have known exactly what it was. So I think it's too early to tell. However, uh, to Demetrius' point, there are good reasons why GPs like this. And those reasons can sometimes be positive for us. So if you look at the pro side, usually GPs contribute some of their star assets, some of their best portfolio companies into these continuation vehicles. They could probably sell them in an outright sale, but they believe that there is more value creation to be had in the future. They want to monetize that in some sort of way. And so a continuation vehicle is, is a great way of doing that. Um, I'm, I'm looking at one, as a matter of fact, today where the vintage investment of the company is seven years back. Um, but yet the, the sponsor believes that it still has some opportunity, but they're sort of running a little bit into a timeline. And so this is an elegant way of, for them to extend the timeline. It's an elegant way for them to get more capital into the business. As Demetrius said, maybe the portfolio company's grown to a size where the amount of investment in order to pursue organic or inorganic growth that the company is starting to exceed the amount of capital that they have reserved to put into it. So this is another elegant way of doing it. But that being said, from the co-investment perspective, you do have to be careful. You can't get sort of bedazzled by the fact that it's this great asset uh, without looking at some of these misalignment features. We've turned some deals down where we felt that either the rollover or the skin in the game from the sponsor wasn't high enough. A lot of sponsors will tell you, hey, great, I'm rolling my GP carry into the deal. And then when I ask, well, is your current fund investing into it? Well, no, we're rolling the GP carry into the deal. I'm like, great. But we've seen examples of, of transactions and we've closed on transactions where the sponsor is actually deploying fresh capital from their new fund into the vehicle. That's alignment that I like. I like that a lot. I look for that. Is that in every deal? No. So there are differences in, in these deals and there are differences in the way GPs approach them that will mitigate, not entirely to Demetrius' point, will mitigate some of the uh, misalignment features. But in conclusion, it's not what a plain vanilla co-investment that is 
without a promote and without a fee aligned with a sponsor that you know well, that's not what these things are. So every time we see one, we have to sort of up our game and make absolutely sure that we feel that on a net IR and net multiple invested capital in the future that we think the risk return is there. Well, you know, it's interesting as we talk about latest trends like continuation funds. Why don't we uh, finish off this podcast with a final question for each of you? And that's, you know, what is your view on what the future holds for co-investing generally? Uh, maybe I'll start here with Brent. Yeah, well, first, I, I also want to thank Deckard um, for giving us the opportunity to be part of this podcast alongside Demetrius and Patrick. It's been great to have this opportunity. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, and as it relates to the, the specific question, I think co-investments, from my perspective, play a very valuable role and will continue to play a very valuable role in a overall approach to private alternative investing and specifically private equity and, and private credit. So, for example, with us in the private credit funds, we believe that having a diversified pool of equity co-investments, you know, with a small sublimit, say two and a half percent of our overall private credit portfolio, actually improves the risk adjusted returns of that portfolio and really mutes and reduces the downside risk to the portfolio. And that has been proven out uh, over years. And then similarly, I think co-investments can be a way to really augment a fund of funds business. So in the private equity vintage solution offering that, that we offer to Alliance Bernstein's high net worth clients in partnership with Abbott Capital, it's a component. We have fund of funds investing, secondaries, and co-investment. And I don't think that, at least from our perspective, co-investments don't necessarily stand completely on their own. They're part of that overall solution. And, and it kind of builds on the holistic approach. And I think if investors take that perspective, co-investments will continue to play a really valuable role. Thank you, Brent. Uh, Patrick, same question regarding the future. Yeah, uh, and this may shock you, John, but I think it's a great product. I think it's a great product for, for the right LP, uh, not dissimilar to what, what Brent said. At Ardian, we have a very large fund-to-funds platform. We have one of the planet's leading secondary investing business. We invest substantial amounts into GPs from a primary perspective, and co-investment is part and parcel of that. If you pushed me into an elevator with a prospective LP and I had two floors to sell that LP on why they should invest in a co-investment vehicle, uh, the best way I could sort of summarize it is the cheap diversified buyout fund. And if you, Mr. or Mrs. LP, don't have access to the kind of deal flow that someone like a Hamilton Lane has or someone like an Ardian has or, or that Brent's shop has, then, uh, then this is a great product for you to be able to, as Brent said, diversify get some good risk-adjusted returns uh, in private equity without necessarily paying full boat for it uh, in terms of fee and carry. So for the right LP, uh, I think it's a very interesting product that should be part of their consideration. And so with that said, I do think that the, uh, the outlook for this asset class or this niche within the asset class is actually quite bright. And uh, we'll end up with you, Demetrius. I'll give you the final word on, the, on this topic. Well, in some ways, this is harder 
Um, but other ways easier because I could just say what Brent and Patrick say. I 100 percent agree with. I, I think the other thing that, you know, we've talked a little bit about what we're seeing on the supply side in terms of uh, opportunities for co-investors to invest in. And, and Patrick made the point earlier, if you mentioned a continuation vehicle three, five years ago, I think all of us probably would have had a blank stare. So I think that the, the news on the supply side is that it's great and more is more. We have great opportunities to invest in. I think the demand side is also evolving. So, you know, Patrick mentioned the, the dynamics between various LPs, and we think this is a product that works and a strategy that works for a lot of LPs on the institutional side. And that's where a lot of the demand and capital has come from historically. What we're seeing more and more of is retail appetite, uh, a desire to, to diversify your alternative portfolio, uh, even beyond kind of the traditional funds. And so co-invest capital, co-investment opportunities are all kind of lining up nicely with the demand side. Um, as well. And so we're very excited uh, here at Hamilton Lane, as it sounds like uh, folks are across the board in terms of what the opportunity set is going to be going forward. Oh, interesting. And thank, thank you again to each of you, Brent, Patrick, and Demetrius, for all of your insights and for joining us today. Uh, for more information or to listen to previous episodes of the Committed Capital podcast, please visit us at Deckard.com. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you can listen to our next episode covering financial services M&A.